0: Uh, If you would go ahead and be turning your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, we'll be in verses 1 to 13 this morning. Let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with. It's that God providentially provides for and protects us through the generosity and blessings of fellow family members in Christ. Uh, Let me read that again. God providentially provides for and protects us through the generosity and blessings of fellow family members in Christ. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Ruth chapter 2 verses 1 to 13. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the story of Ruth is beginning to shift to some different characters. The focus is now landing on Ruth and Boaz. Naomi will recede slowly into the background. She'll show up a little bit, uh, and she'll reappear toward the end. But chapter 1 seemed like the book should have probably been called the book of Naomi, right? The focus was on her as she was uh, choosing to return after losing everything. She lost her husband, Elimelech. She lost her children, uh, poorly named, and she had no opportunity. So she, we don't know exactly why, but she seems to have no interest in getting remarried. She doesn't seem to be interested in trying to have more children. Maybe it had to do with health or age. We're also going to notice that she doesn't go out and glean in the fields. There could have been some sort of health issue, which is why Ruth in particular was serving uh, her mother-in-law. Uh, And so there was some reason why she was not using any of the means that would have been available to her that would be helpful to her. It's also very important that we recognize that for a widow in this context, uh, they would have been uh, in very difficult straits. Notice they don't come back and and take over the land that Elimelech had. He sold it. She can only get it back if there's a miracle, a miracle child of some sort that allows the land to be returned to the family. (laughs) And so at this juncture, her prospects are not good. And the hope that she does have turns out to be a foreigner. Notice we want to pay attention to every time that Ruth's name is mentioned where it's, she's either referred to as a Moabite or a foreigner. And in particular, you want to pay attention when that's not mentioned because it's unique and it tells us something. And so she brings back a Moabite widow, someone who would have been even at greater risk than Naomi and Israel. Right, Because folks, remember the times that we're in. What was everyone doing? What well, was right in their own eyes? So they weren't necessarily obeying the gleaning laws. They weren't necessarily obeying uh, the various laws concerning foreigners, f- foreigners or women or anything else. And so this was a very dangerous time to be Naomi or Ruth. And so as they're returning, the prospects are not guaranteed to be good. In fact, there's a great quote I just read this week by Claire Massoud in a book called Kant's Prussian Little Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. Her mother had this to say. She said, there's just so much of life left to live once you realize your dreams are not coming true. Let me say that again. There's just so much of life left to live once you realize your dreams are not coming true. Now, there's not a single one of us in this room, I think, over the age of about, I don't know, 18 or 20, for whom that there's not some truth in that statement. It is certainly true of Naomi. This is why she comes back and says, don't call me Naomi. I am not delightful or pleasant. I am bitter to the core. Call me Mara. I have no prospects. And so she has no idea how things are going to go. But this is the beauty of why Claire Massoud's statement is not... Uh, the end of the story for us as God's people, right? Most of the time, the dreams that we had uh, actually probably weren't what was best for us maybe in the first place, and maybe you're in the process of figuring some of that out. But what we can trust is that in the meantime, between us having so much life left to live once we've figured our dreams aren't gonna work out, that the Lord our God is at work to redeem and reconcile and bless us as his people And so what we can do in the meantime is exactly the example we see set here. We can be faithful and obedient in the meantime. Uh, Because for all of us, I can guarantee you, if I were to press you, you would say, none of this has worked out like I thought it was going to. Maybe not in a total like Debbie Downer type way, but all of us have things that just did not go as we thought they would go, right? And so here we are. Now we are at the precipice with Naomi as she has returned, and and as Robbie pointed out last week, the good news of the end of chapter one was the barley harvest. Things had changed in Bethlehem. The house of bread was now returning to being the house of bread There was hope, right? So the question I have for you before we get into this is, how has the Lord used others to be generous to and bless you when you were in need? This is actually a beautiful question for you to take stock of this Lord's Day Sabbath. And I would encourage you maybe to even go a step further. If you have not uh, let that person or these people know how, how they have blessed you and what they've meant to you, this is a great opportunity to do that. What a wonderful season in which to express your thanks, our thanks for something someone has done for us. Uh, maybe it was in a time of need and maybe it was in a time of just, it just blessed you, Right? Uh, we would do well to be a people who grow in gratitude. We're also going to see an example here from Boaz of someone who is paying close attention to the needs of someone else. Uh, we need to be careful that we don't read it in a lecherous way, and there's a way in which he refers to Ruth that tells us he's not thinking lecherously, uh, for those of you who know what that word means. Uh, and so uh, we recognize that, that there is a need within the people of the kingdom to have the eyes and ears to see where needs are and to step in to meet those needs, Right? And to recognize when someone is suffering or at risk or just in need of encouragement, a word fitly spoken. Now, the story picks up and and gives us some information that's very important. It says, Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, and this is an important distinction. Anytime you read this in scripture, you want to pay attention to the character of the person. He's known as a worthy man. His name is Boaz. Now, Boaz is a reference probably to words uh, within the realm of strength. In fact, in Scripture, there's a pillar in the temple named Boaz. Not after this Boaz, but just as recognizing that there is strength. This man has strength. And it says uh, that uh, Ruth goes to Naomi and says, Hey, look, we're hungry, and we don't have any prospects, so let me go and glean. Now you need to understand the gravity of what Ruth is saying here. This is not a matter of, yeah, let me just go see if Chick-fil-A's hiring, or "Let, let me go see if I can, you know, maybe rake some leaves for somebody's yard. She's actually putting herself at significant risk to do this. It's the time of judges. In fact, it would be risky, I don't care what era of Israel that you would pick, for a Moabite, who we talked about a few weeks ago, that there is enmity of significance between Israelites and Moabites that goes all the way back to the glean. Now, you would be mistaken if you read this as her asking, let me go to Boaz's field. That's not what she's asking. She's just saying, hey, let me go see if I can find some work. And maybe, maybe Naomi had shared with her about the gleaning laws that the Lord our God had placed in his word in Deuteronomy 24 and Leviticus 19. This is God's kindness to the poor to make sure that if, if all things else failed, that the poor would have the opportunity and dignity to be provided for, that they would get to participate in uh, uh, their, their own uh, gleaning and being able to be fed. And so you need to understand, Ruth is basically saying, I am taking my life in my hands for us. Now, this is one of the interesting reasons why in some uh, versions of Scripture, as Scripture has gone through iterations of book placement, uh, if you read the introduction, Ruth is one of the more traveled books in all of Scripture. Now, one of the places that it was placed was after Proverbs. Why do you think that is? because of Proverbs 31 Ruth is embodying the wisdom now this is this is decentering because you're talking about a Moabite not not just a woman but a Moabite woman who is displaying the characteristics of Proverbs 31 now we need to be careful with Proverbs 31 and not think that it all has to apply to you all at one time or you're no good right it is it's really a celebration of how wisdom uh, can be true of our co-heirs, right? Not just the boys, but the girls too should be invested in and, and, and given the opportunity to grow in wisdom so that they too can honor and serve the Lord our God without us having to tell them what to do, right? And so this is a gift that Ruth extends. The other place that sometimes Ruth would show up is right before Psalms because she's actually a Psalms one person. She is someone who reflects, she and Boaz both actually, reflect Psalm 1. Uh, Now the eventual landing place was where it rests in most of our Bibles, which is uh, between Judges and 1 Samuel, right? Uh, For reasons that we'll get to when we get to chapter 4. But what we see here is Ruth willing to to lay down her own life to try to help feed uh, she and her mother-in-law. And this would not be easy work, right? Because we notice Naomi doesn't ask to go out. So there's some physical reason, more than likely. Maybe it's age. Maybe there's some sort of uh, a handicap of some sort where she's not able to participate because wouldn't it be better if two gleaned, right? Wouldn't there be some protection even in that if the two of you were together? Well, Naomi doesn't offer that, not because of any bad reason, but probably because of something physical. And so she tells her, go, my daughter. Now, you, you have to understand, that would not have been easy for Naomi to say to Ruth. What's she sending her out into? The world of judges. Pack of wolves, quite possibly. She clearly is an attractive woman based on Boaz's response to her later in the book. And, so, and also, to just the, the nature of the times. And so, she goes. And she mm-hmm. gleans and, and she works with the reapers. And she, in God's great and beautiful and wonderful providence, finds herself in Boaz's field. And not just at any time, but when he's coming back through from Bethlehem. And we see more of his character when he extends a greeting to his reapers, his workers, when he greets them with, the Lord be with you. And the counter response is, the Lord bless you. This indicates that he recognizes that vocation is also under the purview of the Lord our God. He's the, the kind of man who displays the character of the Lord. Now, let me pause right here and say something that I think is very important. If we were to try to take and make a moral tale out of the book of Ruth or any of the characters in Ruth, like, hey, let's, let's uh, get the youth group together. Let's talk about being Boazes and Ruth's. Um, that's wrong, actually. And let me tell you why. You cannot display the character of God apart from the love of God. You can do it for a little while, but it's selfishly motivated often and usually commodified in what it's looking for. So this is not a moral tale. This is is the wonderful and beautiful display of people who took the law and the love of God seriously. Why? Because they are loved. It would devastate us to try uh, and and emulate these folks in and of our own strength, apart from Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which you have to remember is the greatest display of the love of God. This is why we're talking about Ruth during Advent, right? And so, so it's very important for us, don't moralize this. But do recognize that the love of God should affect our ethics and how we function in the world. Now notice as Boaz is coming through, he talks to one of his reapers, and, he's, and he says, and the English translation here is, makes us tweak a little bit, whose woman is this? The Hebrew is actually, who is she connected to, is actually the better translation. It's not, a, a, it's not that he thinks she's owned by anybody. He's wondering who she connected to. And notice, as soon as he finds out, he's heard of her. He's heard, uh, her, the report of her has already gone out through Bethlehem and her character is on display. The fact that she has loved Naomi the way that she has and is seeking to risk her own life to provide. Now, Boaz recognizes this risk, you see. How does he respond? None of you better touch her. And he tells her, you stick near with those who work for me and he's basically saying, you essentially, you, you now work for me. You're not just, you're not just anybody. And this, this is actually really important. He's not treating, he's not calling her a slave. He's inviting her, because notice he says, when the men draw the water, you get to drink. What does that mean? Why is that important in their culture? He's saying, you're one of us. And he goes a step further that would have been very decentering to the audience, especially the people who were gathered there. He says, my daughter. Which is him not being lecherous. He's not seeking in any way, shape, or form. He's not thinking anything about marriage or sex. Any of that's not in view for him right now. He's essentially saying, though you are a Moabite, you're a foreigner, you are one of us. And notice when he calls her my daughter, what's the qualifier after her name? There is none. It's the first time she's not referred to as a Moabite or uh, a foreigner. and what's interesting as this be- continues on and, and they're continuing to discuss uh, the, the benefits uh, to Ruth uh, from being in this particular status as essential child of Boaz. Now, I know that can get weird when we start talking about the marriage part, but they weren't thinking about it like that. He's essentially taking responsibility for Ruth in a way that, that gave her both provision and protection. Whose character is that? the Lord our God who takes responsibility for us. Remember, we're Gentiles, right? We're foreigners. We're from all over. We're not the chosen people. And he's welcomed us in to the covenant in the same way. And Christ, who, who died for us, who was willing to protect us, loved the language that he uses. He says, you have chosen to come under the wing and care of the Lord our God. You are in the shadow of his wings. That's a a common term throughout the Psalms and other places to let us know about the provision and protection of God. But what's really interesting is when he says to her, in language that should cause you to pause, he says, you have come to a land and a people you didn't know. What does that make you think of? Well, it ought make you think of the Abrahamic covenant. Because he too left all that he knew, went up according to what the Lord was calling him to, and, and went to a land that he didn't know and a people he didn't know to serve a God he had just met in a way, right? So, before you go getting concerned that I'm putting Ruth on par with Abraham, what covenant is she the grandma of? The Davidic covenant. So this language is not casual. This is signaling to us something very important about who Ruth is before we've gotten to the punchline. She is recognized even by Boaz as, in some measure, the Lord has brought you here. He is someone who is regularly looking for God's providence, so he's able to frequently see God's providence. Too often, we're not looking for God's providence. We've ceased to have the, the, and I'm going to use this term, mystical eyes. The mystical eyes to see where the Lord is at work in things. We're, we're afraid at times to almost hope. We're afraid at times to give him credit for the things he might be doing. Because if we're honest, and this may not be true of all of you. Some of you are better people than me, and that's a good thing. But, but if you're like me, there are times where you're afraid to let your hope grow. You're afraid to kind of lean in and start to, before it's actually come to full fruition and trust, because you think that really what God enjoys is letting you down, hurting you. No, he doesn't. He loves us. He provides for us. He he, he protects us, just as Boaz is doing for Ruth here. He longs for us to be part of the story. He longs for us to know his goodness and mercy and grace. He longs for us to display his character in this world because we know we're loved. Not because we have to, but because we finally get to in Christ. And we get to be the ordinary means by which others are provided for and protected and are given witness to the love of God in and through the hands and feet of Jesus, which we are. And so we we see here just the the beauty of Scripture and how it's constructed and how Boaz is so respectful of Ruth, who's a foreigner. Because he recognizes she is a co-heir, worthy of glory and honor because she bears the image of God. We would do well to think like that about those around us, those in our spheres of influence. We, we would do well for that to be our perspective because that is how we've been viewed. That is what God has bestowed upon us. He would have been in, in perfectly just in that culture, in that time to do with her what he wanted, to kick her out, to mistreat her. No one would have questioned. That's not what he chooses. He chooses instead to bestow dignity and honor upon her, allowing her to continue uh, to participate in in providing for she and Naomi. And notice how she responds. It causes her to to recognize that there's something bigger at work here, right? That there's something more beautiful at work here than she could have hoped for, That, that though there is so much life left to live and her dreams have been dashed up to now, Maybe there are better dreams to come. Maybe there's a better reality to come in the life that is left to live for her. Is that true for us as well? Shouldn't we be a less anxious people of hope? Isn't that what Advent helps teach us to learn to grow in patience and waiting, hopeful, not anxiously, not fearfully, but to recognize that the Lord is at work. Though times will get dark, Though people will while out all around us at times, there is the Lord who is at work in our midst, and He loves us deeply through common, ordinary means that represent Jesus. This is why it's so important for us to look for opportunities to be these common, ordinary means, or at least to pray for within the spheres of influence that we have. Lord, who needs what? And how can we provide? How can we be more cognizant? Sometimes we're just so turned inward. And self-focused that it makes it hard for us to see the person who's struggling right next to us. Who so desperately needs us to bear the image of God because we are loved so that they will know they are loved. And so this is what we get from the character of Boaz and the character of Ruth. Both are worthy. This is why we can see the potential for a burgeoning marriage that would bring together two Insanely wonderful people to display the glory of God in the world that will change history. And you need to know something about Boaz. You know, he's, he's, he's a mongrel himself. Um, he, he comes from a line of people in which his mama was Gentile and, and, his, and his daddy was a Jew. And so it's really interesting here that for all of our, our concern about purity, <laughs> Uh, and all of our concern about things being a certain way and a certain people being better than another kind of people, uh, that the Lord is is within the the story of redemption that he's telling, that's just not true. And it's not for us to celebrate. We learn that from Romans. But we see it even here in what is unfolding and what it's arcing toward. And so Ruth is so thankful for Boaz displaying the character of God, that, that Boaz is loved of God, and clearly bestows that upon her without asking for anything in return. What a gift that is, uh, that, that is the example. And notice, why does the Lord bestow his love upon us? What do you do to earn it? Absolutely nothing. And who in here could say, I have done an amazing job. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson needs to follow me around and write a book about me because I've done such a good job of maintaining and honoring, and glorifying God's love for me. None of us can say that. And yet, does he still provide? We're here. Does he still protect? We're here. Does he still bless and honor? Does he still give hope? He does. So, since I invoke Poor old Sinclair Ferguson. Let me give you a quote from him about this particular passage. He says, in Boaz, law and love are one. Thus, because God is his covenant God, God's law is his way of life. Now, let me pause here for just a second. My my Tuesday group has been hearing this for a number of weeks now, that whenever you hear the word law, you need to immediately think relationship. That was the point of the law. It, it, remember, the two tables break up into love God, love neighbor. What is that? That's relationship. And without Jesus, we, couldn't, we just couldn't do it. We don't have the capacity. So the law became to us a, a tutor and a goad to drive us to Jesus so that we could do what? Know we are loved so we could love God and love neighbor. So it's important for us when we hear law that we recognize that there's an inherent relational aspect to it. It's not something separate from the gospel. It's not anti-the gospel. It's the way that that the Pharisees and we have used it to try to earn God's love that makes it anti-gospel, right? Inherently, it's not. It's God's word. So he, being Boaz, exemplifies the book of Proverbs. He exemplifies the principles of the first psalm. He exemplifies Torah. He knows the blessing of the Lord because he walks in the way of the Lord. No detail of God's law is too small for Boaz to put into practice. Love does not ignore the law because it is more important than the law or act as if it can abandon the law because its nature is to love. Rather, love shows what the intention of the law really is. It is the fulfillment of the law, not the rejection of it. And he quotes or gives a reference to Galatians 5.14. So let me ask you, how do you respond to opportunities to be generous to and bless others when they're in need? Are you, are you quick to say, hey, let's, w- let's figure this out. I don't know how much we have. I don't know what we can do, but, but let's, let's, let's figure it out. Or do you initially go... I don't know. I'd set aside money for that special whiskey, or I'd set aside money for that special uh, t shirt, or I don't know. Is, is such a thing as a special t shirt? Uh, whatever, right? Do you immediately start, start not wanting to, to count the costs? Or do you blame the victim? Well, if they made better decisions, they wouldn't be in this place. Or do you display the image of God quickly? as we ought, uh, as we, has been done for us. And then what does this reflect about your understanding of who and whose you are? Right? There, no. This has been said so many times. If, if, if you want to know about my Christianity, look at my generosity. Right? There's, there's hardly any place for an American Christian than to look at what they do with their time and their money. Oftentimes, right? Their, their willingness to be decentered, their willingness to step out of and be inconvenienced by the needs of another. And so, this is helpful to us, isn't it? Right? Don't, don't, don't let it beat you up. Don't let it cause you to feel bad about who you are currently or where you are currently. You've got the opportunity to repent and bear fruits in keeping with repentance and look more like Jesus. You've got the opportunity to, to help make your spheres of influence. A, a, a more lovely place, right? What a gift that is that we have those opportunities to serve in those ways. And there are many needs. We don't have to look very far. They're all around us. And so, so how might we grow in becoming, as, as, as Josh said, we are a very generous church. Uh, and I, I don't want us to lose that character. That is, it's been a great gift to me serving as pastor to serve amongst such generous people because it makes my, what I do, a whole lot easier. Actually, um, But a, an area I think we could grow in is more the interpersonal, uh, noticing what's going on in people's lives, praying for them, praying with them, um, be, being just, just more aware of, of, of how people are, are struggling uh, and uh, having a word fitly spoken in due season um, and just, just relating to one another, right? Like it's not just this financial piece or this at arm's length. It's to allow it to come to our table, which is what Jesus does, which is an interesting segue to coming to the table this morning, right? It's because Jesus turned to his father and said, I will go. I will go take on flesh I will, I will lay down my life in the humiliation of my humanity so that the brothers and sisters, the sons and daughters could come to boldly before the throne of grace, could come boldly to the table of grace, could come boldly into the midst of the congregation of grace. Right? What a gift it is that because Jesus was willing to suffer and die for us, his people, though we didn't warrant it, we didn't deserve it, we didn't even really ask for it. And yet he was willing to do that. And he wants us to remember that so that we know that we are loved as often as we can be reminded of his love. So that we can display the righteousness, the character of God in the world for the life of the world. Right? So for so many of us, there's just so much life left to live after the dream has, has, didn't come true. Well, this gives us purpose to that life left to live. We're not biding our time until Jesus returns. No, we are to be active while the day is long, right? For the night will come. He'll come like a thief in the night. And it will be over at that juncture. And and praise God in some ways, right? And some of you are like, no, theologically praise God in all ways. Well, I'm still on this side of it. To know that anyone will suffer and perish should grieve us right? And so we get to be nourished to continue in the meantime, to be able to display the character of God, even if we're having to work up out from under our sin and our foolishness at present. Praise be to God, we get to be reminded of of who and whose we are uh, in in this season. And so the only folks who who can't partake of this table are those who don't believe that that, that Jesus is savior. If you think something else can save you, well, this table's not gonna help remind you of that. And if you're harboring a level of unforgiveness, I'm not saying you're not working on it, I'm not saying you're not struggling with it, but if you've decided that, there, that there's someone who is unworthy of the opportunity for repentance, well, that is a godlike thing to try to do and this table's not gonna do much for you either. But for everybody else for whom Jesus came, laid down his life, and has provided himself for us to protect us and to fill us with the image of God and to call us into the work of the kingdom, you need this table. And so when the elements come by, if you would uh, grab, there's two different options. There's the bread that's in the cup, and then there's a, a cup with a wafer on top. Uh, if you would like to just grab that, that's the communion MRE. But if you would like the taste of the bread, uh, is, because the wafer's tasteless, I'm just going to tell you. There's no miracle happening there. Uh, and so you can grab one or both of those. But we're going to all take together as family as recognition that no one of us is any better than the other and as recognition that we all need the same thing and as recognition that we need each other to display the image of, as ordinary means. And so if the elders would go ahead and come forward, I want to remind us of what Jesus said on that night, which was such a heavy and dark night for him because of what he knew he was going to endure. And it wasn't just something that he was enduring in some casual way. It truly hurt him to be slapped and beaten and have his beard ripped out and to be crucified and mocked. None of us could endure that. I know I can't. I can't even hardly stand you bumping into me and not getting weird. But he laid down his life in such a way that it ought to move us And he took the bread, before they would know what it would even mean, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, and it's given for you. And in that, he was saying to them, just as he says to us, that he is eliminating our shame and our guilt. What a gift that is. Not to lead us to arrogance, but to grand humility. And to allow us to come boldly before the throne of grace, not fearing God in that he will destroy us. That the the fullness of God's wrath would be satisfied in that. Then he took the cup as the meal went on. He raised up, said, This is the cup of the new covenant, which would have signaled to them some Old Testament passages telling them, You will have a heart of flesh. You will be transformed in your character, in who you are, and in whose you are. He said, This is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the resurrection blood that they could walk in the newness of life. And so may we remember these things as we take and eat, knowing that it is the Lord who has provided for us. It is the Lord who has, in grace and in mercy, called us sons and daughters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things, these ordinary means that remind us of the deep, deep truths of your love for us and the gospel. I pray that your Holy Spirit would nourish us. Nourish us in the image of Christ. Nourish us to display Your righteousness in this world, not not because we earn anything from it, but because we are loved. It is the outworking of your bestowing your grace upon us and showing us mercy. And God, help us to be mindful of others. Give us a new sight and hearing for the needs that are all around us, that that we would be more active in seeking to, to minister to the hurts and the fears and the needs of those around us. Help us be ambassadors of your great reconciliation. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.